Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Visiting Victor podcast with Victor Dadaj, where you'll hear stories and strategies to help increase your sales and grow your business. Here's your host, Victor Dadaj. All right, welcome to Entrepreneurs Visiting Victor. I'm your host, Victor Dadaj. I hope you're having an amazing day so far. Today, we have an awesome guest. This guy, after getting sober from a 14-year battle with opiate addiction, found himself facing a federal indictment that sent him to prison. After he lost his freedom and later released, he realized he had also lost his identity, confidence, and purpose. And he wasn't sure if he'd end up losing his 20-year marriage. This guy has spent most of the past decade and over 100,000 on coaches, courses, events, and masterminds, searching to find out why his past kept popping up to poison his ability to reclaim his life. This guy is a serial entrepreneur and has grown several businesses to seven figures over the past 20 years. He has a huge heart and is extremely loyal. He is also a people person, great networker, who loves to bring people together. So let's welcome Steve Clower. How are you doing today, Steve? Hey, fantastic, Victor. Appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's great to have you on, Steve. So I'd like to get started, but ask you to please share your story. How did you wind up becoming an entrepreneur? Well, you know, my father was a dentist, but he always was doing real estate deals, mainly a few other things, but mainly real estate deals. When I was a, you know, a kid, I used to, my dad, we had a three-wheeler and I used to pull the the uh, lawnmower behind it and uh, was went around and hustling the neighbors to mow lawns. So that was my very first experience, you know, out hustling and, and being an entrepreneur. Then my father, when I was uh, a freshman in high school, he started building a full service car wash, convenience store, gas station, detail shop. And, you know, he thought that would be his kids kind of, he, he used to refer to it as like the family farm where we could all, you know, work going through high school and college. Um, but so he opened that uh, when I was, it opened when I was a sophomore and right next door was a very large apartment complex. Uh, it was very closely located to Brigham Young University. And so I, you know, VHSs were kind of popular at the time. And so I thought, you know, you had all these students next door, maybe I should talk to my dad and see if he'll let me, you know, find someone who would supply me with VHS movies, you know, and maybe four or six VCR machines that we could rent to these students next door. So I talked to my dad, he said, sure. And, you know, he, he referred me to a couple of banks that, uh, you know, I needed like a couple thousand dollar loan and he wasn't going to give it to me. Um, and, you know, so I, I went to the first bank and they turned me down the second bank. Of course, I used my dad's name, you know, on the second, I kind of learned some things from the first experience and, you know, told them what I was doing. And, and uh, they gave me a signature loan for a couple thousand bucks to be able to get all the videos and the machines and and that was how I started. Then this car wash, you know, my like I said, my dad was a dentist. I was a junior in high school when I did the videos. And <clears throat> fast forward a couple of years, I, you know, worked at the facility. So I knew the cashier side of things. I knew the detail shop. I knew how to wash the cars. You know, I knew all aspects as far as working in the business. Um, but I had no clue about operations. I had no clue about accounts payable, receivables, et cetera. When I was 19 years old, a year out of high school, I caught the general manager stealing. And basically, he uh, had written a check to Cellular One for a cell phone bill of $810. Now, I don't even remember how I came across this. 
but I did. And, you know, this is an on-site manager. This is 1989. So very few people had cell phones anyway. Um, and so it's like, why does he have a phone? Number one, number two, why is he paying? So I went and told my dad, he fired him. Next thing I know, I'm 19 years old running this car wash that had between 25 and 35 employees. And I was incredibly intimidated. So, you know, obviously this taught me a ton, uh, even though my dad at this point, you know, was the one that funded it and built it and everything. This absentee ownership had killed him. And so as I took over, I was incredibly intimidated because here I am as the, you know, owner's son, if you will. And, you know, I didn't, I was, I was very nervous and had a lot of anxiety about how I was going to be treated and if they'd respect me. And to be honest with you, I was scared to death. Um, but I just had to, you know, put my foot forward and, and kind of step into my power. And the fact that I had worked in every aspect of the business was a big plus because I believe uh, and have used this in every one of my businesses since that, you know, there shouldn't be anything that we ask others to do that we haven't done ourselves. So being, you know, thrown into that position, in fact, I was in college when this happened and I dropped out, which was a blessing because I did not enjoy school at all. Um, my mind was always racing and thinking of other things. Uh, you know, I just had a hard time focusing on the things that I was, you know, being taught in the classes. So it ended up being a blessing in so many ways because it taught me so much about business, how it operates, but it also taught me the value of relationships because at this facility, at this time in the town that I'm in, in Provo, Utah, the network I was able to build through the customers that came through there was invaluable. You know, one thing that I've learned in business or in life really is that everything comes down to relationships. And really, that's all that really matters um, from a core standpoint. Then the, the second lesson I want to share, and then I'll wrap this part up, is my grandfather ran Brigham Young University's food service for 35 years. He opened up every facility they have throughout the world. And when he retired, he started coming and hanging around this car wash. Because to be frank, my dad was lost his ass for the first five years. And, you know, absentee ownership is brutal. If you don't have someone that truly has your back, that's hard to find. It's possible, but it's not easy. Uh, but now he's got me as his blood in there. And, you know, I had his back, obviously. But my grandfather's, he would kind of tinker around and hang out. He was a man of few words, but he led by incredible example. And, you know, one of the memories I do have of him is he came up to me one day. And he said, Steve, who's, who's doing you? Who's watching your floors? You need to talk to them. They're being a little sloppy. You know, he was such a detailed guy. He's the kind of guy that would go around with a putty knife and, you know, he'd be checking the, the mop boards to see there's wax on there just to see the quality of job and seeing if people were creating extra messes to create extra work. But the most valuable thing my grandfather taught me, really two very core things that I've implemented in every business I've had. And obviously I'm speaking regarding the car wash industry in this example, but it applies no matter what business. He said, Steve, if you will give every customer the best quality car wash in the shortest amount of time at a fair price, you will have no problem turning this thing around. And if you will also focus on every one of your employees, it doesn't matter if the person's, you know, cleaning your bathrooms, you know, to your 
assistant manager, if you will make sure that they know that they are appreciated and that you care about them, you won't fail. And that's what I did. You know, I created a culture and I, I've done this to this day in every business I have, you know, to really make it like family. And, you know, when people know that you care, you know, they'll go to battle for you. If all you do is treat them like they're just, you know, a means to an end, give them a paycheck, you're not going to get the best out of them. And you're going to lose a lot of people. And, you know, most business owners don't understand just how much it actually costs to replace an employee. You know, when you really look at all the factors you need to, um, it's very expensive to replace an employee. So treating them right so that you can keep them is really critical. So that's really kind of, you know, I got into entrepreneurship. Uh, the short answer is just because my dad, even though he was a dentist, you know, he was always doing stuff on the side. And I guess really it was just kind of in my DNA, so to speak. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that, uh, Steve. So, yeah, obviously you yeah. learned from growing up. Your dad was a dentist, but he also did real estate on the side. Um, you were hustling. When you had your thrill, you had the mola. You hustled neighbors to mow lawns. And then later your dad had the full-service car wash gas station. So um, you, you were trying all kinds of things, um, you know, renting out VHS movies, VHS movies to students nearby. You got, you know, the loan from the bank. But yeah, it was a learning process. You, you know, you didn't know about operational accounts payable. And then you caught some guy, uh, your general manager stealing money from your dad's business. So you, you talk to your dad, you get, you know, the guy was fired. Um, and your dad was very, very often absentee, absentee owner, which is makes it much tougher on the business. So basically, you pretty much took over running the thing for your dad. Um, and it was intimidating because you were young. You never done this before. But you had worked through all the aspects of the business. So I'm sure they gave you some confidence. Um and um, and one thing you learn is, you know, having done everything in the business, you don't you believe it's important not to tell people to do something you yourself have never done. So anything you told an employee to do, you yourself had done. And uh, and you had to manage 25 to 35 employees, which is uh, for a 90 year old, that's got that I can imagine that can be really intimidating. So and that must have been an incredible learning experience. And one thing you talked about is the value of relationships. I, I don't think this can be stressed enough. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, any kind of small business owner, you got to build relationships both with your owners, your customers, your clients. It is so, and just even people outside, you just never know how it can help you. And if you don't focus enough on relationships, it's going to hurt you in the long run. So it's, I'm glad you brought that up. And then your dad, who ran the uh, BYU food store for 35 years, he came over to help a little. And he said he led by example. And he was very detailed. He would notice all the little things, say they should be doing this, they should be doing that. So obviously that helped a lot. And you learned some great lessons. Um, <clears throat> He taught you, give the customer <clears throat> the best quality car wash in the shortest time at a fair price. Because, you know, happy customers, they tell other customers. And yeah. um, and customer service is, is extremely important. And he said, let your employees know they're appreciated, that you care about them. And and that it also costs a lot to replace employees. And a lot of uh, business owners, a lot of companies don't understand that. And um, and one of the major reasons why employees leave is because they don't feel appreciated at their job. So they go somewhere else where they think they'll be more appreciated. Or obviously, you know, the other factors like money, but a huge factor is lack of appreciation. 
and it does cost a lot to replace employees and it also costs a lot to replace customers. So it's much easier to keep a satisfied customer than to get a new one. It, it's so, so those things are both very, very important. So obviously, yeah, so obviously the DNA was in your blood. Now I'd like to get to uh, another aspect of your life because you, you know, in your intro, we talked about the fact that, uh, you you had this uh, big you know fourteen year battle with opiate addiction, which led to, you know, they eventually sent you to prison. So, um, you went to a really it must have been a really difficult time, and it, for many people it's a low point. But eventually you were able to overcome this. So you might talking about your journey and you know your struggles, and then how you were able to overcome this and then rebuild your life and become a successful entrepreneur from that. You bet. You know, it wasn't. Uh, it was very shortly after. Uh, this car wash experience because my dad ended up selling that um, in 1994 and then I was like okay what the hell am I going to do and uh, you know in all transparency one thing about me is I'm kind of an open book so Victor any question there's no question off limits with me uh, but it felt like my dad was kind of screwing me over and this this point I'd gotten diagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987 and that's kind of what got me introduced to pain pills. I wasn't abusing them for several years, but as time passed about 1991, I started to abuse them. And, you know, for whatever reason, I was a very functioning addict. That's not to say there wasn't poor choices, uh, didn't harm those closest to me by the way I acted at times or, you know, put them in awkward situations where they'd have to make excuses for me, maybe why I wasn't a function, family function, or why I went in to take a nap, who knows, all sorts of different things. Um, but I got into the appraisal business and built a, you know, a very successful appraisal firm. And that's what was tied to this mortgage fraud case that I'll get to in just a moment. But as I built a successful appraisal business, like I said, I was abusing opiates this whole time. And I started doing a lot of other things, importing from overseas. I was um, also developing real estate. And I just got to the point where one other caveat to that car wash experience that ties this opiate experience and my addiction was I did find a mentor in that business. And that's truly what helped me turn it around. So all those people listening who are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs, you know, finding someone who's done what you're trying to do is going to speed up your process. So always try to find a mentor because the fastest way to get from where you're at to where you want to go is to find someone that's done that. And so this gentleman, you know, was hanging around my dad's car wash because he actually was wanting to buy in that never worked out, but he had studied the industry for years and opened a very large facility in Salt Lake city uh, for a guy he had worked with for years, but they had a falling out. And so he was wanting to buy in with my dad. Well, he and I, he, he was uh, using opiates and he ended up getting sober about a year before I did. And I did a July 20th of 20 of 2000, I'm going to say 2020, but 2000. And he went and got sober. And about a year after that, you know, I was just so sick and tired of being sick and tired. And, you know, there was days I would drive to work, literally just crying. And one day I was driving to meet a buddy to, go to the golf course to hit some balls. And as I turned at the mouth of the canyon toward the street that takes you about two miles down for this golf course, my body went numb from my neck down. And it literally just freaked me out. And I was, I guess you'd call it scared straight at that point. 
I got to the golf course. I was literally freaked out in tears. And so he jumped in the car and we drove to my gastroenterologist's house. And he lives in a gated community. I talked to them through the speaker because he had something going on. There was, you know, he had a function at the house. And so he ended up calling an internist. And at this point, you know, everybody has probably heard of OxyContin that's listening. Um, but at this point, I hadn't even heard of it as a drug addict, you know. They were very new to the marketplace, probably within a year of this time. And he called his internist friend and said, hey, I need you to see if you can help out a patient of mine who's a family friend. And that guy said, well, I can't see him for a few days um, out of town, but would you prescribe him uh, eight OxyContin and then I'll get with him. So as an addict who was literally was scared to death, was like, I've had enough. This kind of opened that door back up. And then when I met with that internist, he prescribed me a bunch with um, antidepressants because he thought he could just wean me off. He thought I was self-medicating for depression, which that's not the case. And you cannot wean an addict off. That's impossible. It doesn't ever happen. So another three years passed before I got sober. And I just lived in misery. I, misery, I call it dancing with the devil. It was hell. I, you know, I didn't know a way out. This was, you know, like I say, in 2000, it wasn't nearly mainstream and talked about as a disease or, you know, there was no talk about an opiate crisis or any of this stuff. Uh, but thank the good Lord, I just had had enough. Like I said, my mentor in the car wash business had gotten sober. So I talked to him and just said, you know, I, I want to do what you did and I'm done. I want to be done. And so I went to Seattle and did what's called rapid detox. And, you know, it was very difficult, much easier than you know, the detox without being put under, because that's what rapid detox is. It's the process that puts you under the uh, run uh, something through an IV. I can't remember. I don't think it's Narcan. If it's not, it's something similar. Um, but anyway, that's supposed to reduce withdrawals pretty much to darn near nothing. My buddy who did it a year before, and he's 10 years older than me, he was back to work 48 hours later. I used to, in my appraisal office, I had to build a bed. Like I was so fatigued and tired. It was just, it was still very difficult. I mean, I wasn't the Jones sickness that you get as opiate withdrawal, but I just, it was just had no energy zip and it lasted for damn near two months. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of how I got sober. I just had been doing it so long and I was just so sick and tired of the game and the chase. Cause obviously the docs aren't prescribing me enough pills for my habit, which was about 40 a day when I got sober. And, uh, you know, so that's what did it. And there was a time in my, in, in my addiction, I went to a friend of mine who rented one of my office suites in my building that I had at the time. And, you know, I, I went to him because, you know, I grew up in Utah, which is a very staunch Mormon community, grew up in a Mormon family. And, you know, there's a lot of guilt and shame. And this buddy of mine, you know, he wasn't like that at all. He wasn't an active Mormon. And so I went to him one day, I said, Greg, you know, I am I'm still doing these pills. I just, I got to stop, man. I, I don't know what to do. And he, you know, bless his heart. He didn't, you know, he didn't know any better, but he's like, I don't know why you're worried about it. Like you're doing very well with your business. You just rebranded and rebuilt, you know, one of your businesses. And anyway, that just, like I say, it's not to blame him. He didn't know any better. He doesn't have an experience with this, but that, you know, once again, the mind is a powerful thing. And when you're fighting anything, whether it's negative thoughts, 
but especially something like an addiction. And when I'm talking addiction, I'm not talking just drugs, alcohol. You're talking, it can be sex, it can be porn, it can be food, it can be exercise, it can be anything. Um, but thoughts are powerful. And when you have somebody reinforcing something that's a negative, you know, it makes it that much harder for you to control those thoughts because then you grab on to some of the things they say, just like we do our own thoughts and we build on them. And when we do that, that is what is so detrimental if they're the negative types, which most of them are, because that's how, you know, our subconscious is there to protect, which is there to, you know, say things to us that keeps us from doing a lot of things. Um, and so that, again, that kept me using, but anyway, like I said, I ended up getting sober through rapid detox and, uh, then I was sober for years and years. And then this indictment came. It had nothing to do with drugs. I didn't get sent to prison um, over drugs or anything related. But I do often say there was things in my addiction that I did that certainly would have put me in jail and possibly, you know, prison. Um, this mortgage fraud case conspiracy charge I got thrown into was a situation where you know, I was guilt by association. I wasn't personally appraising any of the houses anymore. I had six appraisers in my office here in, in uh, Provo. And I had two in a Southern Utah, St. George office. And I was you know, doing my developing and my importing overseas. And uh, all of a sudden I get handed a, a gag order for me to feed the state investigator any appraisals of other appraisers that we were doing reviews on. And that lasted for a year. You know, gag order means I couldn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my wife or anybody. Um, and when you're a target of an investigation, federal investigation, you know, you're supposed to be told. Um, they didn't tell me that, of course. And then a year later, this same state investigator hands me a federal indictment, a 19 count indictment for conspiracy to commit mortgage fraud. And so there was a guy that was doing a, what are called double closes. I won't go into the details of that, but basically there's a straw buyer purchasing a house and the title company, the one sell, you know, the owners that are selling are closing. The straw buyer is then back to back, then buying, you know, refinancing and cashing out cash out of that purchase. And so if you're going to have a conspiracy to admit mortgage fraud, you've got to have all the players that complete a transaction and appraisals or obviously appraisers are part of that transaction. Now, these were jumbo homes, 1.2 to 2.5 million. And they funded off my guys' appraisals. I didn't even personally do them. But if they funded off my guys, that means we were the lowest of two because on a jumbo real estate transaction, residential, you have to have two appraisals and they always fund off the lower. I found out later that the two other parties that were doing appraisals for these same properties were getting paid $5,000 for the appraisals, which is total enticement to push a value. Because a jumbo like these, the standard charge was twelve hundred bucks. That's what we charged. And anyway, so because they funded off my guys, that indictment had my name and my company's name on the indictment, and that's what I went federal prison over with a thirty-three month sentence. Wow! Uh, well, thanks for sharing all that. So. Yeah, you went through a really tough time. You know, you had Crohn's disease in 87, and then a few years is when you really started abusing the pain pills. And, and he, like at the time, it wasn't as well known as the, you know, the opioid addiction that is, that's become like the, the last five, six years. It wasn't yeah. really paid attention to. 
And uh, so obviously you went through a lot of ups and downs there. Um, eventually you did find a mentor that helped you. And he, you know, he himself got sober around 2001. Um, yeah, you, you, you know, you, you, you were successful in that appraisal business, but at the same time you were abusing opiates. You were functional at the time. And then one day your body went numb from the neck down when you went to play golf and that scared the daylights out of you. And then yeah. your friend drove you to uh, that gastrointestinal guy, guy who couldn't really see you. So he sent you to the, his internist friend and he gave you some antidepressants, but that's not really what you needed. And uh, so it was another three years before you got sober. You did this rapid detox in Seattle, I believe. Um, and, you know, and things started changing. Now, you mentioned a couple of things. The one, the mind is a powerful thing and your thoughts are very powerful. I don't think a lot of people realize how true that is. And they don't realize your thoughts can either help you or they can destroy and damage you. And yeah. uh, especially with their negative thoughts. And yet people around you support you in those negative thoughts. And so you're, you're, you mentioned the subconscious. The subconscious just buys it. So it, it's it, it's like the it's like the computer. It'll take what you feed, whether it's good or bad, garbage in, garbage out, good things in, good things out. So, so true. You know, yeah, very true. And then you got indicted later on this mortgage case, conspiracy case. They sentenced you to you said thirty three months, but I think you got on fourteen months. Is that correct? Fourteen and a half. Yeah. And the reason for that, believe it or not, was uh, there's in federal prison. You know, there's really only two ways to get out early off the sentence you're given and that's to testify in another case some people call it being a rat maybe whatever or the residential drug and alcohol program which is called RDAP now I had I fully anticipated getting that because what happened I had a vasectomy told the doctors you know once I got sober I used to wear my you know and you know yearly I think at the time I had a five-year medallion on my chain of being sober and I would always tell my doctors in my past you know I was committed to my sobriety and the doctor, I told him, so I just said, I don't need any pain pills. And my wife was a nurse and I guess, well, not, I guess he gave, he still gave her a prescription for ultra set, which is supposedly non-narcotic. It's not a schedule, you know, three, like your hydrocodones, oxycodones, all those things. And that night she came in and handed me a couple and, you know, that, that actually created a third, a three week situation where I was abusing those. And because of that, just that sent, you know, thank the good Lord, because of me going through what I went through and then the aftercare program I went through, you know, I realized what was happening that quick. And I just did not want to go down that road again. Um, and so, you know, I let her know because basically what happened, of course, that prescription ran out. My mother had had rheumatoid arthritis for 35 years and, you know, she stayed off the bigger opiate stuff, but she also had ultra set. And as an addict, there's, you know, they say, if you're healthy and you happen to run into some pills in your mom's cabinet, you're going to be safe. If, you know, if you are not that healthy and you happen to run into those, you're going to be in trouble most of the time. And so because I had been given those by my wife, because they're not classified as you know, they're non-addictive, non-narcotics, that is BS. They metabolize for me very similar. And opiates to me metabolize where they they don't give me like a high, meaning I guess I've never done cocaine or any of those things, you know, that supposedly stimulate you, but opiates metabolize and do for me opposite of what they do for most people, meaning I don't get very tired. I don't, you know, I don't want to go to sleep. Um 
And so because of other factors that I've learned about that helped me stay sober, because if you don't understand the underlying reason, then you're going to have a hard time staying sober. Anyway, I caught myself, told my wife what was happening. Because of that, when you go to federal prison, when you're doing your pre-sentence interview with your pre-sentence officer, um, you know, you can discuss all those types of things. Well, because I'm living in fear and don't understand the system, I felt totally screwed over. I didn't tell her about any of my addiction stuff or this, even though this, you know, was three weeks, I still can, I still classified it as a relapse. So like I say, going to prison, I planned on getting the RDAP program, but I didn't have it on my pre-sentence report. If you have that on your pre-sentence report, there's no disputing, no discussion, no whatever you get into RDAP. But mine didn't have that. So when I got to prison, I check in with the, you know, they have a doctor there that's over that program and they turned me down. And I was devastated because I had always figured this 33 sentence, three month sentence, knowing that you can get up to a year off, you know, so halfway house, you can back out good time. And then about, you know, three to six months, halfway house, and then whatever amount of time they are that program. And that's based on how many people, when they get there, it's kind of a funky situation, but I ended up getting 11 months, but I had to contact, um, day spring is what it's called where i did the aftercare program and thank goodness you know this is the only thing i was grateful for of that what i like i say what i classified a relapse that was documented because i told her went and talked to her about it and because that was there she sent paperwork in and i got into that program day spring program okay no okay th no thanks for sharing that so yeah that was that must have been very scary and also scary, you, you almost had another relapse situation with that non-necrotic, non-addictive thing that they called the three weeks. And, and luckily you 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 realize, hey, I'm going down the same road and you stopped. It could have been totally devastating to you. And it's a good thing you told your wife about it. Um yeah, so it's uh yeah, no, and, and thankfully you you know you contact you got into the day screen program and eventually got it in 14 months. Now, you know, obviously that was, you know, that, yeah, I can only imagine how the journey must have been in prison, but, you know, thankfully you got after only 14 and a half months. Now you get out. Now, a lot of people, when they get out of prison, it, it's a tough, but number one, it's hard for a lot of people to find jobs because you're an entrepreneur, but it's, I mean, it, it can be so devastating. You talk about thoughts of powerful things, you know, how, you know, how were you able to overcome them, you know, become successful again, you know, you know, in your intro it talks about, you know, you spent a lot of money on coaches and courses. So how, how were you able to overcome that adversity that a lot of the people can't when they get out of prison? You know, that's why I do podcasts. That's why I started my podcast, Life After Addiction Indictment, is because of what I went through. I wasted a ton of money. Not saying there's not value in that stuff. There is. I believe in having mentors. But my mindset was ruined. I came out of prison, and you can't have your own business, you know, till you're off probation and stuff. So I was looking at a couple of years, three years. Um but that doesn't matter because I wasn't in a place to, number one, know what I was going to do, or I wasn't didn't have the mindset to believe in myself to do it. I, you know, I basically had lost my identity, uh, you know, because I couldn't be an appraiser. That was history. That was over. So what was I going to do? So, yes, I did just you know, jobs, you know, I got a job for a company that I knew of. But like I say, what happened was I started doing all that stuff because just if I'm being honest, was there value in it? Absolutely. But it's like I thought I was going to find that magic bullet or that person that was going to save me. And no one's coming to save you, folks. I don't care what your situation is, what's going on in your life. 
you are the one that's going to save you. And I had forgotten what amount of time and hard work I put in to build my businesses before prison. And because of that, I thought it should just happen overnight. And I, you know, I had a business where we sell TV and internet and home security, which I still have to this day, but I thought I would hire a manager that would just make it all work. You know, that doesn't happen. You know, yeah, they can make an impact, but they're not going to create a business because they're not the entrepreneur. They're not the one they're there to get paid for the job they do. And so it took me that long to finally realize eight years, folks. Okay. I got out September 15th of 2010. So it's only been five and a half years since I finally realized, holy shit, Steve, you have a problem with your mind. Your mindset is totally screwed up. And so I realized that, you know, and I did realize that through working with uh, a mastermind group of guys with the coach. And I decided that I had to focus on rewiring my mind. Um, and so that's what I did. And one of the most powerful things I did, because words are powerful. Thoughts are incredibly powerful because you really go down the rabbit holes, you'll learn that's becoming more and more, you know, in more and more mainstream these days, we've learned more about quantum physics. We've learned more about energy and vibration. And folks, we are nothing but energy. We put out a vibrational frequency that is what creates everything that we have in our life, good and or bad. And I was stuck. I was letting my past get in the way of my future. I actually, when I would have conversations, so often I would say, well, before prison or since prison, why was I letting that define my life? And when I finally realized that and let go of it, I created what I call a conscious self-creation statement. And that's where I just wrote down a whole bunch of things. You know, I am powerful. I, they're basically I am statements and I have statements. I wrote that down, took me a few days, maybe a week to memorize it, but then I would say it every single day as I stepped into the shower every morning. They say, if you see it, write it, read it, and hear it, that's the most powerful, you know, daily. And so I was saying it every single day. I wasn't seeing it, uh, but I was hearing it too. And, you know, some people might be listening and think that's kind of woo-woo or crazy. I mean, you know, law of attraction, the secret's been what i don't know a couple decades old maybe more than that um and i did buy into that when i was exposed to that but there's a difference between having a vision board and saying certain things that's all good but if you don't take that next step and truly visualize and feel what your life would be like if you were at this this place that you're dreaming of and thinking of and talking about or visioning on a vision board, you're not going to create that, you know, for lack of a better word, that magic to create that frequency to attract those things into your life. And two years after I started doing that, my life had totally changed. And I had everything that I was putting out there in my life, but a couple of things. So that stuff is very powerful. And it all came down to mindset. It's just Mindset is critical, as Victor mentioned earlier. It's it's everything. No, I totally agree. Uh, you say your mindset was ruined by prison, um, and you know, I think you said, "Well, you know, you couldn't own your own business. You couldn't be an appraiser. You basically lost your identity." 
And, and after a while, you thought you'd find the magic bullet, the magic person that would save you. And after a while, you realized that no one saves you. You got to do it yourself. And you'd also forgot how much work it would take to be successful because you hired a manager who was good, but he wasn't entrepreneurial like you were. So, you know, so there was an issue there. And you mentioned it took you eight years to figure out, you know, you took all these courses and, you know, coaches, all that stuff. And, and that helps someone, but it really, it took you a while to realize it was your mind that was totally messed up. And while your mind was messed up, it was going to prevent you from being successful. And you were also often letting your past get in the way of your future. You let your past define you, which happens to a lot of people. And yeah. they make one bad mistake and they let it be defined them forever. Like, you know, if you live in the past, it's definitely going to mess up with your future. And, yeah. and then you, you joined the mastermind group, which helped a lot. Um, and you really you rewired your mind. And your, your words and your thoughts are powerful. And one thing I also, let me know if you agree, I think your self-talk is so important. A lot of people very often unconsciously say a lot of negative stuff to themselves and they sabotage without realizing it. Would you agree? 100%. It's like addiction. If you can't catch and admit there's something going on, you have to be able to catch and realize the thoughts that are happening. And most of the time, we're not even paying attention or aware. But once you're aware of it, then you can catch it. Because I was just basically what I was, I call it, I just kept myself in a victim stance, you know. I just kind of had this poor me mentality and, you know, just allowed that to continue to play. And if you're going to take those thoughts that you have and build on them, you don't have a chance. It doesn't matter if you're trying to be a successful entrepreneur, have a positive relationship, get in shape, you name it, any part of your life, you're going to struggle if that's the way you're doing it. Yeah, I agree. Because when you have a victim mentality, you think that you have no control. You think other forces, other people have control over everything. And there's nothing you can do to do it. So you don't take any action. You don't become solution-oriented. But when you take full responsibility, then you become solution-oriented. You're like saying, I have a say in this. I'm ultimately responsible for what happens. So then you're willing to take the actions and become you know, solution-oriented. And, and you're right. You mentioned some of these things. Like Some of those things can be a little woo-woo-y. Um, but if you say these I am statements or I have statements, and then you visualize and they really feel, that's the point. You got to feel it. What happens in your subconscious mind, there's a tension between the kind of life you're visualizing and the kind you currently have. So subconscious mind hates that tension. So it goes to work to come up with ways to get you that kind of life you're desiring. So that's why visualization can be so important. But like you said, you also have to feel it. If you say, I am okay, I'm strong, I'm powerful. So it doesn't, it's not going to help it. You got to say it with a lot of emotion. Your subconscious mind is paying attention on that stuff, both to the emotion and to the pictures. Your subconscious mind thinks in pictures. So that's why, you know, you, you, know, you can't really manifest saying, oh, I think this is going to happen in two seconds. What your subconscious mind do, does is like, when it looks for ways to get the kind of things you're visualizing, your subconscious mind is very powerful. So you're not gonna, you can't you know uh, uh, do a magic wand and pass up. You do have to take the action and work for it. But your subconscious mind can come up with great ideas and the kind of action you need to take to get the kind of things you visualize. So that's why it's very powerful. And almost every successful person I know does some form of visualization, and they do stuff with feelings. They say these powerful statements, like you said, "I have, I am." And all thing, all these things compound over the course of time. So I think that's, I'm sure that's been your experience. And as we're coming to the end of this interview, so over the last several years, you know, you've had success in the past, but you've had a lot of success over the last five years. And the big part is because of your mindset that you've been working on, you rewired everything. Um, you know, for our audience that's listening today, so what are some of the things you recommend to Number one, um, if they're getting started in their business. Number two, if they're struggling and they're thinking of giving up, you know, what would you recommend to those people? No, first thing, 
first is, you know, be committed. You know, one of the things I was doing with owning my business when I was struggling, I had one foot in. I never was committed to that business because to be frank, I didn't love it. And I, you know, people would ask me what I do. Oh, I just have the call center and we, you know, I wasn't proud, I guess. So find something that you can have some passion about. Too often we do things as a means to an end to make money. And that's also the backwards way to do it. If you figure out how you can bring something to the marketplace that benefits, that helps others, that serves others, and focus on doing that, then your money will definitely take care of itself and fall in line. But, you know, meditation is huge. One of the things that I used to really struggle with is I, my mind's always going. And if, and I used to, I would always say that, you know, when it came to business, there's some businesses I got involved in, I'd say, well, you know, I'm not the creative guy. I'm not the idea guy, but I, I'll execute. I'll put it in play and make it happen. Well, think about what I'm telling myself. Okay, I'm telling myself I'm not a certain way. Well, I'm not going to be that way if I keep telling myself that, you know? And so decide what it is you want to do. Find that you're passionate about it. And then, you know, one of the biggest keys that has helped me flip things around, whether it's starting a new business or, for example, my dad's car wash, is find someone that knows it. Find someone that's successful at what you're looking to do and grab onto their coattails and don't let pride get in your way of reaching out and just, even if it's a stranger and you're sending them a DM, you know, that, hey man, I see you're successful at this. I'm just getting started. Do you have any advice? You know, most human beings are good people and we deep down love to help other people. I mean, there's nothing more that fills me more. There's no amount of money I've ever made or ever will make that satisfies me and fulfills me like helping somebody else. So if you focus on others, you know, and find something that you, you know, have something that you're passionate about, you know, those are two things that will really give you an advantage, you know, starting out. Yeah, definitely some good stuff there. Um, yeah. Decide, be committed. Uh, you can't steal second base with one foot up first. You got to have the commitment, right. take the action, find something you're passionate about, meditate, uh, look, for, find someone who's known what you've done has been successful, you know, get a mentor or just ask someone for advice will be a little probably get in your way. A lot of people are willing to share their advice. They'd love to help people out. Don't be afraid to ask. You'd be surprised at, at how many people really do want to help and, you know, yeah. you know, give you advice. So, Steve, listen, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It's been really great. You shared, you know, your, your, your very personal and such and so, which I think people listening are going to find very inspirational. You also shared a lot of great advice. And if people want to get in touch, you see, what is the best way for them to contact you? Hey, thanks, Victor. I appreciate you having me on. Um, you can, you know, reach through my website, you know, lifeafteraddictionindictment.com or any of the social medias I'm on is Steve Cloward. Um, I think it's Steve Cloward one on Facebook. LinkedIn is just Steve Cloward. Instagram is SW Cloward. Or you can send me an email, steve at stevecloward.com. Awesome. Thanks again, Steve. Appreciate it. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks, Victor. Appreciate your time for having me on. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed listening, please smash that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our amazing episodes. Please also leave a five-star rating review and have an awesome day.